0: appreciate that. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 8 this morning. We want to continue on in our verse-by-verse study through the book. Uh, I did want to say um, Karen Wojda is uh, moving to uh, Virginia this week, so let's be praying for her as she's in uh, transition there. So Karen, God bless you as you go, and we're going to miss you and uh, thankful for you. We'll be praying for you. All right, uh, Matthew chapter 8, uh, 23 through uh, 34. Jesus' authority over nature and demons is uh, what I've entitled uh, the message here this morning. And let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord, again, we do thank you for the, the privilege to study the Word. We do pray for Karen as she uh, transitions, it would go smoothly with her. Watch over her and to continue to bless her and use her greatly for your glory. And now, Lord, as we open the Word, we pray that you would minister to our hearts as we study together. Uh, Again, uh, thank you for a great week in VBS, uh, exalting you, and now as we study together, uh, Lord, we see it reinforced from the Scriptures. uh, Minister to our heart those things you would have us to see here this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Matthew, and the theme of Matthew is Christ the King. We're in this section here in chapters 8 through 10, emphasizing the power or the authority of the King. In the Old Testament, there were prophecies about a coming Messiah. It's one of the dominant themes in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis uh, 3.15. So early in the scriptures, we get there. And then it builds uh, about this coming one, uh, this coming Messiah uh, who would come. Messiah is a Hebrew word corresponding to uh, a Greek word, Christ, in the New Testament. It literally means anointed one. In the Old Testament, when God chose a special person for a special work, such as a king, they would be anointed with oil, indicating they were God's special chosen instrument for this special leadership role. But the prophecies indicated a most special one was to come, the anointed one, the Christ, and he would be a king who would be a deliverer of God's people. And if the prophecies were read with a careful eye, uh, they would see that this most unique person would be both human and God at the same time. For example, one example, we could give lots of examples, but here in Isaiah chapter 9, and verse 6, we read, For unto us a child is born. That's humanity, Right? Uh, A child is born, yeah, that's human. Unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's deity. Humanity, deity. In the same verse, everlasting father, prince of peace. So Matthew wrote to the Jews to show them that Jesus was the promised Christ. After the introduction of christ 's messianic genealogy in in the Gospel of Matthew, he then records how John the Baptist came on the scene in fulfillment of prophecy given seven hundred years in advance in Isaiah forty. John the Baptist came on the scene preparing the way for the Lord by calling the people to repentance, saying, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." That was followed by Jesus then coming on the scene in his ministry. And the first thing we have recorded about Jesus and him coming on the scene in his ministry is his message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message that John the Baptist was saying. The kingdom was being presented by the messianic king on the condition of repentance. Those truly repentant are ultimately those who go into the kingdom And the fruits of true repentance are described in the Sermon on the Mount as seen in Matthew 5 through 7, which has been called the greatest sermon ever given. Well, this is then followed up by uh, chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, which is really a chapter on the authority of Jesus Christ. Matthew 8 provides, provides further evidence in Christ's earthly ministry, showing that he is indeed the promised Messiah King. He is presented as having lordship authority, indicative of the divine human Messiah. He cleanses a leper with a touch. He heals the centurion's servant by just saying the word from a distance. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then all the others that gathered, everybody who came to the house was healed. And then he demands first place allegiance from his would-be disciples. That brings us to where we're at in our study today. Matthew eight twenty three, uh, where we begin our study today, picks up, in effect, the interrupted narrative started back in verse 18. And notice what we saw back in verse 18. It says there, And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command, not a suggestion, a command to depart to the other side. Now, keep this in mind. Christ has commanded that they go to the other side, not the bottom of the lake. That would have been different. He said, I'm commanding that we go to the bottom of the lake. Now, if he'd have said that, you know, that would have changed the narrative here. But that's not what he said. Just a little bit of background before we get into the narrative. They've been up here at Capernaum. Now, he says, uh, let's go to the other side, and they're going to end up down in this area of Gadara. Uh, So we'll talk about that, but that's where they're headed. They're headed to the other side, and they're going to come out on this other side here in this region here. So where this happened, somewhere out in the the middle of the lake, in effect, is where uh, this takes place. Let's pick it up. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And that's always the way it is. Jesus is the leader. He is the Lord. The parallel texts dealing with this event are found in Mark 4, 35 through 41 and also Luke 8, through 25. And Mark four thirty five indicates it was now evening following an extremely busy day of teaching and ministering to the crowds. Verse 24. And suddenly, suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea. So that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Sudden storms that come with little or no warning are not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee. At 680 feet below sea level, it is the lowest freshwater lake on earth. It's 13 miles long, about 7 miles wide, about 150 feet deep. The Sea of Galilee is rimmed about by hills and valleys. Mount Hermon up to the north rises up to an elevation of 9,200 feet. And when sudden northerly winds blow down through the valley with great force meeting the warmer air over the Galilean basin, the result is high winds causing violent waves up to 20 feet high and whitecaps. And it can happen very suddenly. It says it happened suddenly here. Now, the word translated here as tempest, uh, suddenly a great tempest, Uh, this word tempest is the Greek word seismos, from which we get our English word seismic. Uh, This word usually denotes a violent, shaking earthquake, but here it denotes a ferocious storm, connoting tremendous turbulence of the water. And note it says it was a great tempest. Verse 24 says that the boat was covered with the waves. That's scary. Imagine 20-foot waves coming over the boat. Now, I don't care how seasoned a fisherman you are. That that is terrifying when you're out on a lake that's 150 feet deep and you're out in the middle of the lake. Mark 4.37 and Luke 8.23 says the boat was filling with water and in jeopardy. And where was Jesus? Well, He's fast asleep. I mean, it's not like a light sleep. He's fast asleep. It had been an exhausting day, and he was tired. Here we see the humanity of Jesus. By the way, there's a kind of a popular t-shirt out there. Have you seen it? Jesus took naps. Be like Jesus. (laughs) But there's a context to Jesus sleeping. And I want you to know, this was no normal nap. Uh, Jesus was asleep in the midst of a horrendous, life-threatening storm. You know, something like this. I mean, that's that's uh, you can sleep through anything. <laughs> Verse twenty-five. <clears throat> then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, "Lord, save us! We are perishing!" Now, give the disciples a little credit. Not too much, but a little credit. They knew who to go to. You know, they weren't looking to Peter, the big fisherman. They didn't say to Peter, you're the fisherman. You're experienced with a lake like this. Please do something. Uh, They knew this was over. This was above Peter's pay grade, right? No, they knew this was way beyond Peter. So they went to Jesus, calling him, Lord now, Matthew and Luke are a little more gracious, simply saying they awoke Jesus, saying, we are perishing. Mm-hmm. However, Mark 4.38 says, the disciples said to Jesus, teacher, do you, not, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? I, I think that had to hurt. If anyone cared, ever cared, it was Jesus. But don't we also often respond that way in the storms of life when we have a a life-threatening crisis? Lord, don't you care what's happening to me? We might not verbalize it, but it's a good lesson. Of course he cares. I don't care what the crisis you're going through today. He cares. And he's in control. If you call him Lord, that means you're, you're recognizing he's in control. Kind of a little contradiction. Lord, we're perishing. Lord, you said we're going to the other side. Lord, we're going down. There's a little contradiction there. But the prayer here was good, right? This is a good prayer. Lord, save us. I have a few of those quick prayers. Like when Peter's, you know, out there on the storm. He's walking on the water and he's going under. Lord, save me. That's a good prayer. Lord, save us. You know why? He's in the saving business. He is mighty to save. And he sometimes puts us in impossible situations just to prove that he can do it, to show who he is. Verse 26 But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Why are you fearful? Well, we're just about to die. Look at this. Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Jesus rebuked their fear, saying this is uh, reflective of little faith. Now note he didn't say they had no faith, but just a little faith. They had, after all, come to Jesus saying, Lord, save us. I mean, that shows some faith, right? Like I say, they didn't say to Peter, save us and said, Lord, save us. They were looking at Jesus. This phrase, a little faith is found five times in the new Testament, always in reference to the disciples. Now, lack of faith among those who have faith is really kind of disappointing. It speaks of faith that is ineffective, deficient, or defective in some way. The goal is to have great faith, not little faith. But it is possible for people with faith to have little faith in in whatever situation. Certainly possible. Now, their being so afraid showed little faith in Christ's lordship authority. Even though they're calling him Lord, they're recognizing him for who he is. There's some faith there. But it's weak. It's little. After all, Christ as Lord had commanded that they go to the other side. And fear here is contrasted with faith. And faith in this sense is a a contradiction of faith. You see, faith triumphs over fear, or fear triumphs over faith. Which way is it going to be? That's the question. Faith in the Bible is always based on God's Word. Invariably, that's the case. Faith takes God at His Word and rests in it. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So faith is always connected to the word of God. You know, you don't write your own ticket with God and say, well, I just have faith that it's going to happen. Uh, You have no idea what's going to happen. The Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Uh, God knows what's going to happen. What you know for sure is what God has said. And faith takes God at his word. That's what faith is. So much errant teaching these days, which says, I just kind of make up my, you know, I can, I can have whatever I want if I just believe God. That's faith. And that's not faith. Faith is taking God at his word. It's always anchored in and connected to God's word. Now, these disciples had heard Jesus' command to go to the other side, right? Yeah, they'd heard that. They heard the word of the Lord. But in the midst of the sudden crisis, they'd lost sight of it. And that's so easy to do. All of a sudden we're faced with a great crisis and everything goes out the window except for my focus is totally on the crisis and I kind of lose sight of the Lord in the crisis. Note the contrast between this and the great faith of the centurion earlier in the chapter where he believed in the word of Jesus saying if Jesus just spoke the word his servant would be healed. Jesus called that great faith. And that is in contrast to the little faith that in the same breath called on Jesus as Lord to save them, while at the same time saying, we are perishing. Well, which is it? Is he the Lord who can bring us to the other side, as he said, or are we going to perish? Well, then, to prove that he indeed is Lord, the text says, then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. You know what that is? That's, in effect, a call to worship. It's awesome. This is lordship on display. This is one of the most powerful miracles that we have in the scriptures, all kind of stated in one little sentence. Kind of like in Genesis, and the stars also. Little P.S. It's amazing. Now, no one except God Almighty can do this. It just can't be done. I know man and his big ego thinks he can control the weather. Guess what? Uh, yeah, maybe stop polluting. I mean, there's some benefits to that. But as far as really controlling the weather, go back to Genesis. It's God who controls the weather. The apostles were empowered by God to do various miracles, but this category of miracle over nature was reserved for Jesus alone. You know the apostles did miracles of healing, miracles over demons, but they didn't do miracles over nature. It's reserved for Jesus alone. And that is significant. For this is the realm unique, uniquely belonging to God. You see only God ultimately controls the weather. That's why I'm praying for rain. How about you? Uh, You know, I know these forecasters act, and they kind of banter about, like, uh, well, John, why aren't you doing this? We need some rain, or whatever. Forget it. Uh, He has no power over that. The uniform testimony of Scripture is that God controls the weather. Note this, uh, for example, just, you know, uh, indicative of what we find here in the Old Testament Scripture, Psalm 107, verse 23, Those who go down to the sea in ships who do business... On great waters, they see the works of the Lord. They see God's working. How? It continues. And his wonders in the deep. He commands. He commands. Who does? God does. And raises the stormy wind. He's in charge of the wind. Which lifts up the waves of the sea. They see the works of the Lord. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths, their soul melts because of trouble. I imagine, I imagine. I've never been out there in a situation like that, and frankly, I don't want to go there. Uh, I'm a land dweller. They reel to and fro, stagger like a drunken man, and are at their wits' end. They're seeing the works of the Lord. What do they do? What do they do? They cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brings them out of their distress. He answers prayer. And what does he do? He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Now, if you are a Jew in the boat here, and you know the Old Testament scriptures well, undoubtedly having read through the Psalms many times... With that background, what must you be thinking? Who does this according to Psalm 107? The Lord. The name here is Yahweh. That's the most sacred name for God in the Bible. The one true sovereign God of Israel. The covenant God of Israel. He's the one who calms the storm and stills the waves. Jesus did that. Jesus fulfills Psalm 107. No one else ever did that. None of the apostles ever did anything like this. This is a God thing, hands down. Now you need to realize that when a ferocious storm like this hits the Sea of Galilee, it can take, um, people who know this stuff, the commentaries I was reading in the study here shows that it can take anywhere from 24 to 48 hours for the sea to quiet down completely. So when Jesus rebuked the winds and the sea, and instantly there was not just calm, not just calm, but a great calm. That's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. You got 20-foot waves, white caps, and all of a sudden, glassy calm. Suddenly the winds came to a screeching halt, and there was perfect calm. Suddenly the waters instantly became like glassy still. That never happens. Never. You see, the winds gradually subside. When's the last time you were out and it's blowing ferociously and all of a sudden perfectly wind still? I mean, that just doesn't happen. The sea slowly calms down, not instantly. It happens after a long period of time. But not this time. At the command of Jesus, there was instantly a great calm. Now that will get your attention like none other. Matthew 8, 26 says the disciples were fearful in the storm, crying out, we are perishing. But when Jesus calmed the storm, Mark 4, 41 says, then they feared exceedingly. (laughs) There's a lot of fear representing the boat that day. Different kinds of fear. Do you know what's more terrifying than the life-threatening storm outside your boat? It's coming to the realization that the sovereign power who controls the storm is in your boat. Now that's terrifying. Just having the realization of being in the intimate presence of the one that has power over all nature made them fear exceedingly Note the language here. Great tempest, great calm. No matter how great the storm, Jesus is greater. Faith recognizes Jesus' authority over all other forces. He is greater than all. William MacDonald says, All disciples encounter storms sooner or later. At times it seems we're going to be swamped by the waves. What a comfort to know that Jesus is in the boat with us. And I would add, and is in control. Verse 27. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Marveled expresses extreme amazement or wonderment. And no wonder, because no ordinary man could do such a thing. They were in awe at Christ's power to control. Even the wind and the sea. And they touch on the ultimate issue when they say, who can this be? I wonder. Who has this kind of authority and power? The answer, of course, is only the almighty God. David Jeremiah says, Jesus is both the human being in need of rest and the sovereign creator who can calm a storm? We see both here, don't we? Now, years ago I was getting ready to teach through the parallel passage in Mark chapter four. I don't even know how many years ago that was, but it was a while back. And as I was preparing the sermon that week, I, I got a call from a cultist who didn't believe that Jesus is the eternal God. And he had called me before I recognized his voice, and I knew exactly where it was going instantly. He would do this on his lunch break. I think he thinks he was kind of serving his uh, God. But he came off like this brilliant guy who knew the Greek. Boy, he was quoting Greek backwards and forwards. I think he was quoting Greek so well it wasn't even Greek. But he was quoting the Greek and, and the Bible backwards and forwards. And boy, he's really trying to convince me Jesus is not the eternal God. And he really cut into me in a derogatory way as far as how I could be so simple as, as to you know, just not believe that Jesus is the eternal God. So I asked him one question in light of my study that week, and I said, Who controls the weather? Who controls the weather? Suddenly this brilliant scholar could not answer or would not answer the question. I pressed him. I'm not going to let go of this. Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who controls the weather? He absolutely, positively refused to answer that question. And quickly, in his quick-talking way, just diverted and tried to go somewhere else. But I have noted that while he used to call me, he hasn't called back since. (laughs) Who can control the weather? God alone. This is God's jurisdiction. God alone controls the forces of nature. Jesus' unique miracles over nature show definitively that He is God Almighty come in the flesh. He is indeed the prophesied divine human Messiah prophesied in Isaiah 9.6. We see both on display in this story. Verse 28. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Now, all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this event. Here in verse 28, some manuscripts read... uh, and some read Gadarenes. Uh, Let me just put a couple of references up to bring you up to speed real quickly on this. We're not going to spend a lot of time because it doesn't really matter which way you go. We're talking about the same region no matter what. But just to give you a little feel for it, this is the Holman Christian uh, uh, Study Bible. Early manuscripts of Matthew describe this event as occurring in the region of Gadarenes. uh, Gadarenes. uh, In contrast to the early manuscripts of Mark and Luke, describe it as occurring in the region of Gerasenes. Gadadra and Gerasa were located in the same province. The different readings mean very little in this light, and they likely arose due to transcription errors rather than a disagreement between the original texts of the Gospels. Uh, One more quote here from Ed Glasscock. He says, variants are not... Problems with inspiration, but with copyists and should be considered should not be considered a major issue here, since there is both a Gera- Gera- Jessa, uh, eastern shore and Gadara, a city on the southeast and the territory around it, either uh, Garin or Garne could be an appropriate term so uh, you know in other words there's some overlap here between these two designations uh, Gadara was a key city in this uh, area. D.A. Carson says the locale seems to have been in the district controlled by the town of Gadara, a major city in this area, uh, near the village of Gerasa. Well, it all fits uh, the geographical implications uh, when you put all the corresponding texts together. Moody Bible Commentary says the topography here fits Matthew's description with fertile but steep slopes that plummet into the sea. Uh, By the way, this area was called Decapolis. This area here. So they come across the sea and and, and, uh, Gadara is a a key leading city in this area. And this is in the area, the Gentile area of Decapolis. Uh, You know, we get decade, deca means 10, 10 cities here, 10 Gentile cities in this area of which Gadara was a key one. Well, as Jesus came into this territory, he was met by two demon possessed men. They lived in tombs. And we're so fierce that no one could dare pass by that way. But here comes Jesus. going to be a problem for Jesus. You say, oh, there's some trouble up ahead. We better take a detour. No, no, not a problem for Jesus. Here comes Jesus. Things are about to change. Now, understand that in the Bible, there are two spiritual forces of power. One is of God, and the other is of Satan. Demons are fallen angels, fallen spirits, unclean spirits, who follow Satan. They're spirit beings. Now, God alone ultimately has the power over the forces of darkness. In Matthew 12, Jesus shows that only God has the power over demons. And his ability to cast them out shows that he is God. That this is the finger of God. Now, Matthew reports... Two demoniacs were involved here, while Mark and Luke record only one. But that's no problem. Uh, They don't say there was only one. It seems that Mark and Luke emphasize the more prominent one, put the emphasis on him, but actually there are two in view as brought out here by Matthew. Now, demon possession is real and it is scary. And, uh, you know... (laughs) It is not fun to have to deal with uh, demonic stuff at all. It's intriguing, but we don't want to focus on that. Demon possession means that these evil spirits actually live in a person and control them. Wycliffe Bible Commentary, "...demoniacs in the New Testament are pictured neither as gross sinners nor as victims of insanity, uh, though demonization may produce such effects." but as persons whose minds have come under the control of an evil spirit or spirits. They have a mind problem, and that's because these evil spirits are in the mix. And they really mess with your mind. Sometimes it it is exhibited in supernatural strength. Luke records that the demon-possessed man wore no clothes And that when kept under guard, broke the chains and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Note this in Mark. Again, focusing on the one that's more prominent, uh, who had his dwelling among the tombs. No one could bind him, not even with chains. Put him in chains, just break out of them, Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. Naked, out of control, untameable. What a pitiful situation. Too great a situation for Jesus? No, no. Now demons, like Satan, have a malicious spirit that desires to harm people. Christ's kingdom miracles were always good and beneficial in contrast to Satan's work, which is always destructive and harmful. Thus, it should have been obvious to all that the power of God was working through Jesus, in contrast to the destructive work of the demons. Notice uh, this messianic prophecy back in Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, speaking of the coming Messiah, because the Lord has anointed me, he is the anointed one, To preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So Jesus, the Messiah, came to set Satan's captives free. And he, being the God-man, had the power to do it. Verse 29. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus? You son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, no one dared pass that way for fear of these demon-possessed men. But when Jesus came, it was the demons who cried out in fear. Such is the power and the authority of Jesus. I love that about Jesus. And I'm thankful I'm with Jesus. All these forces out here, they would just love to devour me. And Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy you. Praise the Lord, we got Jesus. Note the disciples in the storm failed to properly recognize Jesus. But these demons knew full well who Jesus was as the Son of God. And they recognized his sovereign authority over them. They didn't say, who do you think you are? You don't have any power. No, that's not that's not how it went down. They said, what have we to do with you is literally what to us and to you. It really reflects a Hebrew idiom that always indicates hostility, indicating we have nothing to do with each other. Note they recognize Jesus for who he is as the son of God. Son of God means that Jesus shares in the very nature of God, that he is truly God of very God. Son of God does not mean Jesus is in any way lesser than God, but rather shares in the very nature of God. When Jesus called God his Father in John chapter 5, the Jews properly understood that he was, quote, making himself equal with God. Son of God is clearly a messianic term as seen in Psalm 2, 7 and 12. Now, it's interesting to note that Satan and the demons called Jesus Son of God and never, never called him Son of Man. Isn't that interesting observation? Now, Jesus, in his veiled state of humility, emphasized his human role, calling himself the Son of Man. But the demons know full well Jesus is God, and therefore invariably called him Son of God in recognition of his divine authority. So in Jesus we have what? He is the Son of God. Jesus is God, of the very nature of God. He is the Son of Man. He is human. Jesus is the God-Man, fully God, fully man in one person the most unique person in the entire history of the world, the God-man. And you can't take away from either one. You can't take away from his deity or you'll be a heretic. You can't take away from his humanity, you'll be a heretic. He's fully God, fully man in one person. Now these demons clearly recognize Jesus' absolute authority over them as the son of God saying have you come here to torment us before the time now they have no doubt that it's coming right the only question they had is about the timing jesus said that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels matthew 25:41 then he will also say to those on the left hand depart from me you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels Now realize that at the time of the flood, and I don't have time to unpack all this theology for you, so I'm just cutting to the chase here. But realize that at the time of the flood, certain especially bad demons were bound in a special holding place called in the Greek Tartarus, where they are awaiting final judgment. Perhaps these demons were wondering if this too was to become their fate as well. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, I think there was some angels who sinned, especially grievously in relationship to Genesis 6. If God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment. We see here that the demons recognize the deity of Christ. They know judgment day is coming and that this is their fate and that they cannot act apart from permission of Christ's sovereign authority. Demons have good theology. Good theology. The problem is that their allegiance is to Satan and rebellion. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe there is one God? Good theology. You believe there is one God? You do well. Even the demons. Even the demons believe and tremble. I believe in God. People say that. You know, I believe in God. Well, good. You and the demons. That's good. What kind of belief do you have? As I've said through the years, the issue becomes the nature of saving faith it's not enough to merely have good theology it's not enough to simply believe intellectually the issue is the heart even the demons believe intellectually and they tremble emotionally but their heart allegiance is not with jesus what do we have to do with you we don't follow you they follow satan not jesus The issue is the heart. The Bible says with the heart one believes unto righteousness. It's not enough to intellectually recognize Jesus as Lord. He must be my Lord. My Lord and my God, Thomas said. And Jesus said, Thomas, you have seen and believed. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. Verse 30. Now a good way off from them was a herd of many swine feeding. The fact that there was a great herd of swine there is further evidence that this was essentially Gentile territory. Mark 5.13 puts a number at about 2,000 hogs. Now, the Mosaic law forbade the Jews to either eat or touch swine. I mean, every Jew knew you don't have anything to do with swine. Only in Gentile territory, such as Decapolis, would you find such large herds of swine. Verse 31. So the demons begged him. They're begging Begged him, saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. The large herd of swine suggests that the number of the demons was large. In Mark 5, 9, in the course parallel passage. The responding demon said, quote, my name is legion. For we are many. We are many. You see, in the Roman army, a legion denoted 6,000 soldiers. It is thought that legion generally came to denote a very large number, numbering in the thousands. It's amazing how many demons can possess a person. Uh, You know, they used to have these theological debates about how many angels can sit on the head of a pin. uh, How many fallen angels can possess a person? Evidently, a very, very large number of them. No Christ's authority here. The demons, realizing Christ is about to cast them out of the men, request permission to enter the herd of swine. They realized they could only operate according to Christ's permission. Again, the issue is one of power and authority. Cross-reference, Luke 8, 31. They begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Again, this evidently refers to the underworld prison currently occupied by the especially wicked demons as they await final judgment. One more cross reference, Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, they crossed over some lines here. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, Jesus had the power and the authority to cast them into this holding pit. He'd done it before, and they knew it very well. They didn't say, who do you think you are? There was none of that. Now, it would appear that demons desire to inhabit a body of some kind, especially humans. Evidently, they find some sort of morbid satisfaction in residing in a body, Luke chapter 11, 24, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. Boy, they're just kind of like restless. They're looking for some place to, to dwell. And finding none, he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. You know, that, that house was, I, I left it, maybe looking for something else to, somebody else to ravage and destroy. to come back. However, in this case, if uh, the possession of a human body was no longer allowed, they beg for permission to possess these pigs. Footnote here, the word demons here is translated as gods in Acts seventeen eighteen, In Jude 8 and 2 Peter 2, 10, they are referenced as dignitaries. Thus, they are recognized as powerful supernatural beings, ultimately created by God, although fallen. Yet Christ is over them showing superior power and authority. You know, we taught through Colossians this week. This is a great verse. For by him, Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. That is a phrase that, that Paul consistently uses in reference to angelic beings, angelic ranks out here, whether fallen or otherwise. All things were created through him, and for him. Christ is the creator of all, sovereign over all, including all the forces of evil, including all evil spirits. Verse 32. And he said to them, Go! So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Christ granted permission. And when they came out of the men, they immediately went and possessed this herd of about 2,000 pigs. You see, demons have an effect on those they possess, and it's always negative. It's never pretty. It's always destructive. These pigs couldn't handle it, and suddenly the entire herd ran violently over the cliff into the sea and perished. John MacArthur says, In more advanced societies, a person who is seriously deranged by demons is likely to be considered insane and placed in a mental institution. And it seems certain that many people who are diagnosed as mentally ill are actually demonized. I'm going to have a qualifier here. That's not always the case, obviously, but, but sometimes. You see, the world has a medical model and tries to see everything through that lens. But in truth... There's also a spiritual model. And the only cure for demons is Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. If the Son sets you free, you should be free indeed. I don't have any other answer. You say, well, Dwight, I I thought part of your ministry was exorcism. Wrong. (laughs) I share the truth of Christ, but people have to respond to that. And Jesus sets them free. Howard Voss says this the balancing statement that I was talking about, one should not go to the extreme either of explaining all demon possession as mental illness or concluding that all mental illness is demon possession. You got to be careful there. Sometimes it's hard to know whether uh, it is a situation involving demonic activity or some other factor. It's sometimes hard to know whether this is a medical problem or purely a spiritual problem. Now, if it is a spiritual problem, medicine's not going to work. So we need to be careful. But we do want to say that Christ is the answer for all of our spiritual problems. When it comes to salvation and sanctification, Jesus Christ alone is the full answer. And I refer you to Colossians. (laughs) Colossians! Footnote. Some say this is the only recorded miracle by Jesus that was destructive. That's what some say. I'm not one that says that, but some people say that. I beg to differ. Jesus delivered the men of these demons. That's positive and constructive. And Jesus did not force these demons to possess the pigs. He simply allowed it. You see, God is not responsible for what he allows that's a very, important part, a very important point in theology. Sometimes people want to blame God for what happens in the world. But there's this permissive will. God allows sin. We often say that under the umbrella of God's sovereignty, He promotes some things, He permits some things, and He prevents some things. But in the case of God permitting things like sin, we cannot hold God accountable for what free will agents do. There's a difference between what God permits and what he promotes. I'm not going to tie sin to God. Never. I start with the presupposition, in him is light and there is no darkness at all. There, There is no fault ever with God. You know, I'm not going there. Here we see Christ permitting the demons. As the one who has authority, he permits them. To possess this herd of swine. But they really brought about the death of this herd of hawks. It was the demons that did it. Not Jesus. Now he allowed it. Yep. Again, as I've noted, Christ in presenting his kingdom credentials as king. As seen in his kingdom miracles. Always did miracles that were positive and always a Blessing. In keeping with kingdom blessings. After all, he is the king giving a sample of the coming kingdom as as seen in his kingdom miracles in his earthly ministry. These were his, his credentials that he is the king who brings in the kingdom. Thus he gave a little sample, a little preview of the coming kingdom in his deliverance ministry while he was here on earth showing that he indeed was the true Messiah. Verse 33. Then those who kept them fled and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon possessed men. They knew the full story. So, those tending to the hogs evidently were aware of exactly what had happened. They knew Jesus had delivered these demon possessed men, they knew the demons had entered their pigs, which promptly resulted in mass suicide by the entire herd just shows you uh, the effects that demons have. Hogs can't handle it. Neither can people. It terrified them. They fled. It terrified these people that were watching the hogs. And they fled back into the city, evidently Gadara, and reported everything. Verse 34, And behold, the whole city came out out in mass to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. What an amazing response. These swine herders in effect became evangelists and the whole city responded. They came out to meet Jesus. Only one problem. They responded negatively. When they saw Jesus, they did not welcome him. They did not receive him. Praise the Lord, the deliverer is here. No, they begged him to depart from their region. Yes, these people were awestruck but unrepentant. You see, one can know the truth and yet reject it. Sometimes Christians think that if there was just a little more evidence, people would respond. Rejection is not necessarily an intellectual issue, but rather fundamentally a heart issue. People don't believe because they don't want to believe. John three nineteen. this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world... And men love darkness rather than light. They don't want the light. This is an example. The evidence is more than sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient. The Spirit's enlightenment of conviction is sufficient. The problem here was not a lack of evidence, but rather they didn't want Jesus interfering with their lives. They'd rather have the demons, the demon problems. You can't pass that way, but that's okay. Just leave them alone. And you know what? If you beg Jesus to leave, he'll leave. He does not force his way in. I do not find that grace is irresistible, like some. Grace, got you down! I don't find that. In fact, I find the scripture saying in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, not to receive the grace of God in vain. I find in Acts 7, 51, rebellion that resists The Holy Spirit. Stephen says, why do you always resist the Holy Spirit? And in Hebrews 10, 29, I find that rejection, in rejection, it is possible to insult the Spirit of grace. The Spirit woos, the Spirit convicts, He invites, but He does not force. Which is why the Scriptures say, today if you will hear His voice, don't harden your heart, respond! Respond! These people put pigs over people. They put economics over deliverance. They put the unclean over the holy. And they put demons over the Savior. A perfect example of the world loving darkness rather than light. It makes no spiritual sense whatsoever, but that's the world for you. They're lost in rebellion and darkness. Two questions. Who is Jesus? Second question. Who is Jesus to you? It's not enough to know the truth about Jesus. We must receive Him personally for who He is as Lord and Savior. We know these verses, right? John 1, 11 and 12. He came to His own, and His own did not receive... There's a problem. They did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe In his name. How do you receive? You believe it. You accept the truth. You embrace the truth. You appropriate. You apply it to yourself. Ralph Waldo Emerson was a famous philosopher. Who lived in the 1800s. And he wrote this. Historical Christianity. Has fallen into the air. That corrupts all attempts to communicate religion. It has dwelt. It dwells with noxious exaggeration about the person of Jesus. Wow. Now there is a blasphemous blunder for the ages. That misses the entire point of the Gospels. Not only is Christianity not a noxious exaggeration about the person of Christ, but in truth, his greatness cannot be over-exaggerated. I'm always understating the greatness of Jesus Christ. He's always greater than I can speak, conceive, or think. For true believers, Jesus is Lord over all. His authority is total. His power knows no bounds, whether in relation to nature or demons. No matter the realm, Jesus is Lord over all. As Paul says in Colossians 3.11, for us as believers, Christ is all and in all. I like this quote from Augustine, although I don't like everything about Augustine, but I like this quote. Christ is is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. There's a diamond of truth. Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. The Bible says as the God-man, God has highly exalted the Lord Jesus Christ and that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Every demon will bow in confession of Christ's lordship. The devil will bow. Ralph Waldo Emerson will bow. There are no exceptions. The only issue is... When you're going to bow, not if. Believers bow in repentance and faith in this life. Unbelievers die in defiance only to find themselves bowing before the sentence of eternal damnation. So who is Jesus to you? Is he God? Is he your personal God? Is he your savior? Acts 16.31 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And the Bible says, now is the time. Tomorrow may be forever too late. So Christ invites you to come. Receive him by faith for who he is as Lord and Savior. Let's stand and have our closing song together.